Morning. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. And when you find that, please stand with me if you are able. I know there are some among us who aren't and they want to. But praise God for the privilege of reading His Word. Matthew 15. We're going to read three verses, verses 29 through 31. By the way, I bring you greetings from our men up at the men's retreat. I was with them the last couple days. And uh, they're doing well. They're coming home today. All right. Pray for them as they drive back. Matthew 15, beginning at verse 29. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Let's pray. Lord God, first thank you for your presence with us. And thank you, Lord, for your word. And thank you, Lord, for what you do. Thank you for who you are and, and what you do, what you've done, what you're doing now, and what you will do in the future. Lord, we acknowledge how great you are. We acknowledge how good you are. We thank you, Lord, that we have the privilege of coming and gathering as a group, focus upon you, to praise you, to listen to you, glorify you. And Lord, we pray that that is what will happen. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And please be seated. I thought we could uh, do a little show and tell here. I want to uh, show you a picture of my family, my, my wife Angela and our five kids. I want to show you a picture of them. And it's interesting, if I stood up here and just said, let me tell you all about my wife and my kids you would get a, a certain picture, but unless I showed you, I could actually point, point a few of them out right here, but I could show you a picture, you, you get a fuller representation of who they are, and, and you can recognize them and things like that. And the reason I want to do this is because we're talking today about God's glory. And, and really at, at its root, the idea of God's glory is that God is showing forth how good He is, how great he is how awesome he is and he's doing it in a demonstrative way we read that the people saw what had happened and they glorified god well here's a picture 1991 i keep it on my desk in my office there's a picture of angela in her all her wedding glory and then our kids from a few years ago but you know when you show and tell you get a a, a bigger yeah, 1991, okay? 1991. Uh, beautiful, beautiful. Angela's looking at me going, no, no. But you know what? It, it's a beautiful picture. I keep it on my, on my desk because it reminds me of my wife and also of my kids. But I want to show you and tell you, and, and really what God did in the passage we're looking at today is he showed how great he is. He didn't just tell them. They saw they saw with their own eyes. Now, a lot of commentators have 
look at these verses and they, they pass right by them and go to the feeding of the 4,000. Oh, this is a transition. And as I was looking at this, I'm like, this is much more than a transition. This is a significant showing of the glory of God. And, 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 and we, if, you, if you're a believer, if you, if, you, if you trust in Christ for your salvation, you know that all of life is to be lived under the lordship of Christ for the glory of God. And, and it's as the Westminster Confession famously states, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And that's an all-encompassing goal. That's an all-encompassing purpose. And it is emphasized by all who desire for their lives and for their households and for Christ's church to, to operate in line with the Word of God. And so, we're going to talk about God's glory today. You know, the glory of God is the primary theme in the Bible. The primary theme of the Bible is the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. It says, If you speak, speak as it were the utterance of God. If you serve, do so as by the strength which God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Oftentimes, in the New Testament, when, when we see a phrase like this, it is followed by, Amen. This is the way it is, and this is the way it will be. Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6 says, To him who loves us and has freed us, from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever amen second Peter 3:18 says to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 21 says, To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 7 and verse 12 says, Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Psalm 96 and verse 3 instructs us to praise him, declare his glory among the nations. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 3 says that the whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth is full of God's glory. God says in Isaiah 48 11, my glory I will not give to another. He's not going to share his glory. When Jesus was born, Recorded in Luke chapter 2 and verse 9. The angels, the angels proclaimed glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. Romans eleven thirty six says that from him, excuse me, yeah, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now we come to Matthew 15. We've got all these glorious 
pronouncements in the Bible of God's glory. And then you come to Matthew 15, and you might be tempted to think, well, this is a, this is a, a, you know, a, a collection of things in the, right in the middle of Matthew, and it's about what Jesus did. Amazing things. How do we see God's glory? Well, here we see God's glory clearly in the context of the unbelief of the Jewish religious leaders and the, and the faith of a Gentile woman. We see some of the, by the way, in this chapter, we see some of the Bible's primary focuses. We see the authority of Scripture. We see the supremacy of Christ and the necessity of faith and, and God's sovereign grace. And here in these three verses, we see the glory of God above all else. Jesus does something and the people get it right. They respond right. This is the great example to follow. Jesus did something and the people glorified him. They glorified him. Well, let's start at verse 29. We'll go through these three verses and then we'll make some comments about some things we can learn. But verse 29 Jesus went on from there. Where was he? He was in Gentile territory. Actually, last week I mentioned to you at the very end of the sermon, I said, by the way, the next thing that happens is Jesus goes back into Israel, back into Jewish territory. Wrong. That was wrong. What he did is he stayed in Gentile territory. He goes, he's still in Gentile land. He travels down the east side of the Sea of Galilee into the area around what is called the Decapolis. That means ten cities. There was this group of ten cities, and these, this was Gentile country, and, and mainly pagan country. They were worshiping all sorts of false gods. They were really worshiping demons. Now, archaeologists have actually found in, uh, in the area of the Decapolis ruins of, of, of magnificent, elegant temples and statues and Forums and countless pagan statues and monuments honoring the Greek gods, um, like Zeus and Epaphrodite and Artemis and Hercules. This is the context in which Jesus went up on the mountain and sat down. And, and by the way, you might think, you know, wow, he went up on the mountain, he sat down. Wonderful. Now, if I did that, I go up on a mountain and sit down, it's because I am tired from walking up the mountain. But Jesus shows a very significant action here. You cannot miss this. This, Jesus does something very important when he is sitting down. In those days when you would sit down in, in the way he did, he was assuming the posture of an authoritative teacher. Now in our culture, you know, you, we sit and, and teachers stand. Well, in, in, back then, the teachers sat and the, the the, 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 the disciples would come around and learn. The teacher sitting down was an invitation. And it was an invitation to come and learn. Jesus here is inviting the Gentiles to come around and to learn from him. But what did they do in response? Well, they, they got it right. They, they came, and they didn't just come alone. They brought people with them. And, and they, didn't, they didn't just leave it there. After they saw what happened to the people, and they were in awe, they glorified God. They spoke well of Christ. That's what happened. 
Now, in a similar way, God invites us to come to Christ with every need. God invites us to come to Christ with every need, and there's a purpose for it. It is so that we would be in awe of Him, and and that that awe would turn to praise, that that we would glorify Him. How do we do this? How, How does that happen? What does it look like? Well, let's just look at this and, 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 and look closely at these verses and, and see. The first thing is the idea of coming to Christ with every need. Every one of us has needs. Every one of us is very aware of our needs. And, and we are to come to Christ with those needs. It's like First Peter chapter 5 and verse 7. Casting all your, your cares upon him. Because he cares for you. The idea of casting those cares... It, the word literally means to throw a burden upon a beast of burden who can handle it. You're crushed, you're overloaded, and you, you throw your burden that you are carrying around onto God who can handle it, who can deal with it, who can do something about it. Verse 30 says that great crowds came to him. A lot of people. You go on into the passage we're looking at next week on the feeding of the 4,000. You see that there were at least 4,000, up to 20,000 probably, because those were 4,000 men. And, and they came to him. The idea here is that as you come to Christ with every need, you come to Christ believing. See, when the people came to Christ, they weren't just saying, hey, let's go watch a show. Let's go see an event. They were saying, we believe that this man can help us we believe that when we go to him something significant is going to happen you come to christ believing so for us that would be the idea of of praying maybe that our hearts would be directed toward him that we would have a desire to come to christ not just for salvation but to keep coming to christ keep diving in to the deep, deep well that never runs dry. That we would be coming to Christ. When they came to Christ, they were admitting their need. They were admitting their need for Him. So we need to admit our need and dive in. Now, it doesn't stop there. What we see happen is that they came and they brought other people with them. We're we're not just to come to Christ believing, we're to bring others with us. Here's who they brought. The lame, the blind, the crippled, and by by the way, the word crippled there literally means the worst physical condition. They might have been having mangled limbs or missing limbs and other ailments physically that caused them not to be able to walk up a mountain. And they brought the mute, those who could not speak, and the blind. And, and I love this, it says, and many others. In Hebrews chapter 11, it speaks of, of those of faith. And, and it speaks of people that have gone, went through horrendous things because of their faith. You know, for example, people who got sawn in two for their faith. I love, I love it where, it where it says, and there were others. Others. They, they brought all these people and many others, and they brought them and put them at Jesus' feet. 
You know, when I read something like this, I, 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 I picture a scene that happens and it's over. You know, it, it just maybe it goes on for a little while and it's done. And, and you, you know, you got a little snapshot in your head of that. But here we know from verse 32 that they have been with him for three days. This went on for three days. Can you picture the scene? People coming up the mountain and then going back down. They went up blind. They came back down seeing beautiful vistas. Maybe for the first time in their life. They were carried up the mountain and then they walked or maybe even ran down. Maybe for the first time in their life. So there was this expectation mixed with great joy. Can you imagine being carried up the mountain and, and passing you are people running, praising God because of what he had done for them? What had happened here is that they were bringing people because they were aware of their solidarity and their, their unity with the human condition. See, if you're carrying someone up a mountain, you can walk. You're guiding a blind person up a, up a mountain, you can see. But they, they didn't just say, well, you know, they're going to have to take care of themselves. You know, I used to play handball a little. Not, not handball, excuse me, racquetball. Racquetball. Handball, you don't use a racket. We had a racket, a little racket. But I, I, I learned something in, hand, in racquetball that if, if, if you get in front of the person you're playing against, and you block them from, from getting the ball and hitting it, it, it's called hindering them. Hinder. And you lose, the, you lose something. It's not good. And, um, well, the thing is, you know, remember when Jesus said, don't, don't, don't hinder the children from coming to me? Let them come. Here, they're not hindering people from coming to Jesus. In fact, they're bringing them by the truckload to Jesus. They were compassionate about the the sin-ravaged plight of human beings. Galatians 6, 2. I mean, for the church, shouldn't that be happening in much greater measure? Galatians chapter 2. I mean, chapter 6, verse 2. Bear one another's burdens. The overload. They're crushed under a load. They're, they're overloaded, and so you, you bear it. You carry it says when you do that, you fulfill the law of Christ. It's the, you don't owe anyone anything but to love them. 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says if, if one member suffers, they all do. Everyone suffers. We're to re, Romans 12, 15, we're to rejoice with those who rejoice. We're to weep with those who weep. When one is sorrowful, everyone is sorrowful. When one strays, we weep. When one's caught in a sin... Everyone's affected. You know, it's like my front lawn and my, and my next-door neighbor's front lawn. They pretty much come together. So if my front lawn has weeds in it, so will my next-door neighbor's. If my front lawn is doing really well, so will my next-door neighbor's, and, and vice versa. And it's because of the close proximity to the lawns. They're, they just kind of blend. They're so close, you can't, you can't not be affected. Double negative. But in the body of Christ, we belong to each other. We belong to one another. We are interdependent. We're called together to walk in unity and solidarity. That's what we're called to. We don't get to pick and choose. 
it's like a family whoever shows up you love them how strenuous it must have been for these people to be carrying people up a mountain you know they're probably thinking jesus couldn't you go to couldn't you stay near the water <laughs> down in the sea of galilee you know, up on a mountain wow can you imagine how 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 much energy that took how much effort that took how much commitment that took to get them there every one of my kids since they were little all five of the kids um, spent a good amount of time in a backpack on my back going up places like uh, vernal falls and uh and and even in tennessee and abram's falls in in the, the smoky mountains in the cades cove and and i would get up and, and get to the falls and i would be drenched with sweat I would be exhausted and loving it because I was bringing my kids to see something that I wanted them to experience. So it didn't matter if they were so uh, a burden on my back to carry them up because I wanted them with me to see that. Well, we need to bring people to Jesus because there is no greater experience. None. So we need to come to Christ with every need and we need to bring others with us. Now the second part of this is that we would respond in such a way that there would be awe and praise. That we would be like awed at what God has done and therefore praise Him, glorify Him, as he shows forth how good he is, we return with, with thoughts and words and actions that actually go uh, to, his, to his glory, that we, we speak well of him, that we say, God, you are so good. God, you are so great. God, you are so awesome. So the idea is that we would be in awe of him and give glory to him. And, and first and foremost, to be in awe of Christ. Verse 31, the crowd... They see these things and, and they wonder. They marvel at what God has done. His, there, it means to be in awe and amazement. To be in awe and amazement. And, and, and it's because they, had, they were seeing things that defied explanation. They couldn't humanly explain it. A blind man seeing a deaf man hearing, a crippled man walking. Uh, you can't explain it except that God did it. And so it says that they glorified the God of Israel. They were amazed. They're blown away by how amazing God is. The NBA has a, uh, a slogan, uh, where amazing happens, which I guess is not happening this year. Uh, but truly amazing, you know, all these dunks and all these plays and all these things. Well, truly amazing happens only by God alone, for His glory alone. Truly amazing, the capital A, amazing, only happens by God. You know, God said, I will not give my glory to another. So you need to be in awe of Christ, but also give glory to Christ. Give glory to him. Verse 31, the, the, the last part of that verse. They glorified the God of Israel. 
further proof that he was in Gentile country, a, a Jew would not say that. A Jew would just say, praise God. Not glory to the God of Israel. A, a Gentile would say, glory to the God of Israel. Praise the God of Israel. They marveled at his healings. They, they praised him. Now, so go back to the context. Go back to the, to the context in which they lived, where there were multitudes of false gods that were being worshipped. Not unlike where we live. Not unlike today. Multitudes of, of, of gods that people worship. False gods. Idolatrous situations. That, that's their situation. They're, they're pagans living in a day where they believed that there were so many gods to be worshipped. Remember Paul? His, his spirit being provoked within him as he saw a city full of idols. Now, it was a worldview that was held by both Greeks and Romans. It was the prevailing worldview. And, and, and by the way, they probably didn't doubt that God existed. They just saw him as one among many. But when they saw the display that they saw, then, then here's what they did. They praised him uniquely. They praised him exclusively as superior to all other gods. This moved them to the extent that they, they said, this God is the one true God. So they overflowed with praise to God. You know, when someone is food deprived for long enough, their, their stomach actually shrinks in size. Their appetite gets suppressed. If someone continually gorges themselves on food, they actually, you know, get bigger and their stomach gets bigger. It's just the way it is. But think of it this way. In the spiritual realm, when we are consistently hungry for the word of God, our hunger builds and grows. In fact, the other day, the day after we had our our reading through the gospel of Matthew together as a church, somebody who was there uh, texted me and said, you know, I am experiencing a hunger for God's word that I haven't had for a while. God is, God is using that in my life. It's the same way with praise. When we continually praise God, our hunger to praise God grows. It's not like, you know, I only got so much praise to go around, so I'm going to just pick and choose what I praise God for. I think a lot of Christians might, might think and live like that. You know, I got to be selective about my praise here, God. Sorry. No, uh, the more you praise God, the more your capacity to praise grows. But here's the deal. We know we don't live like that. We're sometimes cursing God. We're sometimes cursing people made in the image of God. We, we're to called to praise God, but we know we get it wrong. So let's talk about it. Let's talk. How do we get it wrong? How do we get it wrong? Well, the first thing I think is that instead of bringing our, our, our needs to God, we tend to blame God or, or condemn ourselves. We'll say, God, it's your fault that I'm like this. And I'm sure, do you wonder if someone was wanting to say, hey, I want to bring you to Jesus. He's up on the mountain. I'm going to carry you. And they're like, no, I don't want to go. He made me like this. It's God's fault. He, he speaks for God? No. 
a lot of people will be so wrapped up in blaming God. That, by the way, is the polar opposite of praise. But then what about condemning ourselves? How many people, how many believers think that, hey, this is going on in my life because God's paying me back for all my sin? God's just, it's finally come around. What goes around comes around. It's finally hitting me. All the things I did in my past, well, I'm getting payback now. So I'm going to have to just bear that. We tend to blame God or condemn ourselves. And I know it is difficult to bring your every need to Jesus if you're blaming God and if you're condemning yourself. So we get this misguided blame and we, we forget that God is sovereign. He has sovereign purposes in everything. We also tend to think of ourselves. We are really, really focused on our needs. To the extent that we say to other people, well, they can just go to hell. I don't, I don't care about their needs. And, and we're so focused on our needs, we forget the needs of others. So focused on me that I can't see. By the way, that's me when I go to a seafood buffet. You go with me to a seafood buffet, you could be having like a heart attack. I'd be like, you know, I'll, I'll be there with you in a minute. There's sushi over here, you know. The, the building could be burning down. I'm like, I'll be there in a minute, you know. I'll be, I'll be out in a minute. There's seafood here, you know. Um, it's, it's the way we get so focused on our own needs. We can't see it. We get blinded almost to anyone else's needs. And we also tend to, to draw faulty conclusions about things. We see something happen and we think, oh, I know why that's happening. You know, we start thinking, oh, I did that. Um, or, hey, you know what? They are amazing. That person is so amazing. They're so, in, in, in so they're a genius, you know? They're, they're wow, what intellect or what, what creativity. See, we look around and we see results and we figure, hey, man did that of his own ingenuity. I mean, think about it. The faulty conclusions we draw and we forget that God gave us the ability to do whatever we can do. See, we are not originators. Anything we come up with, I don't, you, know, my, you might hold a patent to something that, that no one else has ever had a patent on, but it's like something else. There is nothing new under the sun. You know, it's, it's like with God's word. You know, we don't come up with, I don't come up with, oh, you, you, never, you never heard this before. You know, if, if I come up with something you've never heard before, I'm probably wrong. You know, with the God's word, we're torchbearers. The torch has been handed to us by others, and we're carrying the torch, and we're going to hand it off to someone else. This frail man carrying the light of God's word for the glory of God. Well, what we are, we're tools. We're instruments. We're not the originators. But here's the deal. Sin and idolatry and being caught up in, in overtaken by a sin. You know, when someone's overtaken by a sin, you know what we're supposed to do? You go and restore them in a spirit of gentleness. To restore is the same word used for the, when the disciples were mending their nets, their broken nets. We're to go and gently restore those that are caught in any sin and looking to ourselves. God forbid that we would be caught in the same thing, knowing that we have a propensity to be caught in the same thing. We're tools. We're God's instruments. We can't come up with a faulty conclusion because here's what it will lead us to. 
then we will tend to glorify man instead of God. We are so prone to glorify the instrument instead of the craftsman, instead of the maker. God very clearly spoke of it in Romans chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, of those who were, who were idolatrous in, in their in their, in, their, in their hearts and in their actions, it says they claimed to be wise and they became fools. And, and then they exchanged the glory of the immortal God. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. And the downward spiral just continued. Then they, they exchanged God's glory for images in the form of birds and animals and reptiles. All the way down the food chain. How many institutions, think of this, how many institutions there are in America, even institutions of higher education, that once were dedicated to the glory of God, and you, you could see a magnificent chapel that's not even, that the gospel isn't even preached in anymore. You can see great halls with uh, archways that say, to the glory of God. And long, long ago, they, they abandoned that? Drifted far away? How many lives have we heard of that were once dedicated to the glory of God that somehow just drifted away and kept drifting? The faulty conclusions lead to misdirected praise. 